The House and Senate will both return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. <clears throat> two weeks ago on the House floor, the House came back to work on Monday, February 11th, and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. They took off that Tuesday so they could travel to Michigan for the funeral of the late Congressman John Dingell, the longest-serving member of the House in history. On Wednesday, the House considered and passed H.J. Res. 37, a joint resolution directing the removal of U.S. troops from hostilities in the Republic of Yemen that have not been authorized by Congress. The resolution passed by a vote of 248 to 177, with 18 mostly conservative Republicans, for instance, Meadows, Jordan, Roy, Brooks, Biggs, etc., crossing over to vote with the Democrat majority. On Thursday of that week, the House took up and passed H.J. Res. 31, the minibus appropriations bill that funds the rest of the government for the rest of the year. The bill passed by a vote of 300 to 128, with 87 Republicans voting for it and 109 voting against it. And then they were done. This week on the House floor, the House will return tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is set to take up seven bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House will consider H.J. Res. 46, introduced by Representative Castro, which declares that, quote, pursuant to Section 202 of the National Emergencies Act, the national emergency declared by the finding of the president on February 15, 2019, in Proclamation 9844, is hereby terminated, end quote. Later Tuesday, the House will take up S-47, the lands package, under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House will consider its first gun control measures of the 116th Congress, H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019, and H.R. 1112, to amend Chapter 44 of Title 18, U.S. Code, to strengthen the background check procedures to be followed before a federal firearms licensee may transfer a firearm to a person who is not such a licensee. Two weeks ago on the Senate floor, the Senate came back to work on Monday, February 11th. They voted to invoke cloture on S-47, the lands package. On Tuesday of that week, the Senate voted to pass S-47 by a vote of 92 to 8. Later Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of William Barr to serve as Attorney General of the United States. Cloture vote was 55 to 44. Interestingly, Rand Paul voted against cloture, while Democrats Doug Jones, Joe Manchin, and Kirsten Sinema voted for cloture. Cory Booker did not vote. Two days later, after the 30 hours of post-debate cloture time, had, uh, I'm sorry, after the 30 hours of post-cloture debate time had passed, the Senate voted to confirm William Barr as Attorney General. That vote was 54 to 45. Paul voted no again, while Jones, Manchin, and Cinema voted yes. Richard Byrd did not vote. Later Thursday, the Senate took up and passed the conference report to accompany H.J. Res. 31, the minibus appropriations bill, to fund the rest of the government for the rest of the year. The bill passed by a vote of 83 to 16 and was sent to the president for his signature. This week on the Senate floor, after the vote on the minibus spending package, Senate Majority Leader McConnell filed cloture on a number of items. This will be the order in which the Senate processes its business this week. First will be a cloture vote on the motion to proceed to consideration of S-311, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Next will be consideration of Eric D. Miller to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit. Then will come consideration of Michael Desmond to be Chief Counsel for the Internal Revenue Service and an Assistant General Counsel in the Department of the Treasury. That'll be followed by consideration of Andrew Wheeler to be Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. 
Finally, the Senate will move to consideration of the nomination of John Ryder to be a member of the Board of Directors of the Tennessee Valley Authority. To the census, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear in its current term a case challenging the Trump administration's decision to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. On the Clinton emails front, former FBI general counsel James Baker, the FBI's top lawyer, initially believed that Hillary Clinton should have been charged for her handling of classified emails, he told members of Congress in secret testimony to House investigative committees last year. It was revealed this week in leaks to John Solomon at The Hill and Catherine Herridge at Fox News. It was only late in the investigation that he changed his mind and agreed with former FBI Director James Comey that it was impossible to prove she had the intent to violate the law when she behaved the way she did, even though proving intent is not necessary to convict under certain statutes. Now to North Carolina 9. Last week, the North Carolina Board of Elections held extraordinary hearings into just what happened last year in the campaign for the seat in the 9th Congressional District, where on election night, Republican Mark Harris led Democrat Dan McCree by 905 votes. At issue were absentee ballots in two counties and whether or not North Carolina law had been violated. North Carolina law is very strict when it comes to the handling of absentee ballots. Only a voter or a family member of a voter may touch an absentee ballot before it's been returned to the proper election officials. Yet, for years and years, through several election cycles, a gentleman by the name of Leslie McCray Dallas has apparently been running an absentee ballot harvesting operation in which, for a fee, he would manage an operation to harvest absentee ballots in two small counties. Republican nominee Mark Harris, who had seen Dallas's operation at work when he ran for Congress two years earlier in 2016, decided to hire Dallas for his 2018 campaign. And that decision, it turns out, will likely prevent Harris from taking a seat in the 116th Congress. After hearing testimony from Harris, who changed his position during the hearings and called for a new election, the Board of Elections issued a call for a new election in the 9th District. Under a new law enacted late last year, that will require both a primary election and a general election to be held later this year. At this point, it's quite likely that the Democrat, McCready, will face no primary challengers. But there are serious questions as to whether Harris will even make a run at the Republican nomination. We'll keep an eye on this one and keep you informed of major developments. To the Russia hoax, on Wednesday of last week, CNN reported that special counsel Robert Mueller may wrap up and issue his report as early as the middle of this coming week. Commentators pointed out that would mean he would be issuing his certain-to-make-news report while the president is in Vietnam conducting a summit meeting with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. By the end of the week, the Department of Justice had told reporters he would not deliver his report this week. To Senate rules. On Wednesday, February 13, the Senate Rules Committee approved a change in Senate rules on a 10-to-9 party-line vote. The changes would limit debate time for most nominees and reduce 30 hours of post-cloture debate time to just two hours for district court judges and sub-cabinet executive branch nominees. It would not apply to cabinet secretaries or Supreme Court nominees. Senate Majority Leader McConnell is expected to bring the changes to the floor before the end of March. To the shutdown, a week and a half ago, President Trump indicated that he would sign a funding bill to keep the government open for the rest of the fiscal year, even though the bill did not include the full $5.7 billion in wall funding that he had been insisting on. Instead, he said he would sign the bill, accept the $1.375 billion for wall funding that it contained, 
and then invoke a national emergency to reprogram another $6 billion towards wall funding. Not surprisingly, his opponents announced they would immediately file suit to block the reprogramming of funds, and House Democrats announced they would introduce and pass a resolution blocking it. That resolution will come to the floor of the House on Tuesday. If it passes, and I have to assume it will, as it already has 225 co-sponsors, including one Republican, Justin Amash of Michigan, it'll then move to the Senate, and the Senate will have to act on it within 18 days. Because it's essentially a resolution of disapproval under the National Emergencies Act, it is not subject to filibuster and the 60-vote threshold. If all Democrats vote for it in the Senate, it would require just four Republicans to cross over to pass it. On Friday, President Trump announced that if the resolution of disapproval passes both House and Senate, he would veto it. Given that a veto override would require no fewer than 50 House Republicans to cross over and vote to override his veto, not many are worried that he would not be able to sustain his veto. To the staffing front, Mark Short, who served the first year and a half of President Trump's administration as his senior lobbyist on Capitol Hill and then departed last summer, is returning to the Trump administration as chief of staff to Vice President Pence. Heather Nauert, who had been nominated to replace Nikki Haley as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, withdrew her nomination because of a nanny issue. On Friday, President Trump nominated current U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Kelly Kraft, to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. On the Syria front, the White House announced Friday that contrary to what President Trump had said several weeks ago when he declared there would, be, there would shortly be a full pullout of U.S. armed forces from Syria, the U.S. instead would be leaving behind a residual force of about 400 servicemen and servicewomen to ensure that ISIS is not able to rebuild itself and its caliphate after a U.S. withdrawal. It is believed that these 400 troops will show enough U.S. skin in the game to warrant similar contributions from U.S. allies, so that a force of 1,000 to 1,500 troops remains as a bulwark against a rejuvenation of ISIS. And finally, to Virginia chaos, it's been two weeks since we last spoke, and that means there's been two more weeks' worth of chaos at the top of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Governor Northam refuses to leave, and the polls appear to be turning slightly in his favor. Democrats in the legislature don't know what to do about the lieutenant governor, who now faces sexual assault allegations from two separate women. At one point last week, the top Democrat in the House of Delegates approached the Republican speaker and asked him to sign a joint letter washing the legislature's hands of the episode. He refused to do so. Instead, Republicans, who control both houses of the Virginia legislature by the skin of their teeth, will seek to launch legislative hearings at which both female accusers will be afforded an opportunity to testify and the lieutenant governor will be given a chance to respond. No date has yet been set for the hearings. And that's our Washington Report for this week.